Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Now, there is something truly magical at the risk of sounding ridiculous. There's something truly magical about these kind of unusual aquatic habitats, isn't there? Well, let me clarify for a bit. I mean, I find almost any aquatic habitat alluring as pretty much most any fish geek does. The interesting thing is that just about any body of water that fosters aquatic life is like a magnet, right? It just draws you to it like a moth to a flame. Streams, creeks, rivers, ponds, lakes, flooded forests, and damn, love me some flooded forests, if you haven't guessed by now. (laughs) But each and every one holds a real special appeal. However, I'm really fascinated by aquatic habitats that are ephemeral in nature. You know, fleeting bodies of water which form as a result of weather, floodwaters, or seasonal changes. Yeah, the world's filled with all sorts of aquatic habitats, which are not well studied or even thought out by most hobbyists. One of my fave examples uh, are the so-called vernal pools, which, though found in various parts of the world, hold special fascination for us as aquarium hobbyists when they occur in tropical locales like South America and, uh, of course, Africa. Vernal pools are classified by ecologists as a type of wetland, although they are, as their name implies, temporary aquatic habitats. Now, certain fishes, such as annual killifishes, have evolved to adapt and thrive in these environments over eons. This, of course, makes these unique aquatic ecosystems all the more fascinating to us as fish hobbyists. Typical vernal pools in the tropical locales that I've just discussed are dry for at least part of the year and typically, but not always, fill with water during seasonal rain or flooding events. And some of these pools may stay partially filled and, you know, with water during a given year, Uh, or even longer, uh, but all vernal pools dry up periodically. Uh, Sometimes these pools empty and fill several times during the wet season. Uh, Movement of water between vernal pools also occurs. Uh, They're typically associated with plains or grasslands and are typically small bodies of water, often just a few meters wide. And in fact, the origin of the name vernal refers to the spring season, which I thought is kind of interesting. And it makes a lot of sense because these most ephemeral habitats are usually at their maximum water depth during the spring. Vernal pools are typically found in areas comprised of various soil types that contain clays, sediments, and silts. They can develop into what geologists call hydric soils, which are defined as a soil that formed under conditions of saturation, flooding, or ponding long enough during the growing season to develop anaerobic conditions in the upper part. Ooh, that's interesting, right? It comes into that whole mud, flooded forest kind of stuff we've been talking about. So a unique part of the vernal pools and essentially is uh, what is essentially an impermeable layer of substrate called the clay pan. And these substrates are hugely important to the formation of these habitats because the clay soils bind so closely together that they become impermeable to water. So thus, when it rains, the water percolates until it reaches the clay pan and just sits there filling up with decaying plant material, loose soils, and, of course, water. So, yeah, the substrate is of critical importance to the aquatic life forms which reside in these pools. Let's talk killies for a second. One study of the much-loved African genus Nothobranchius indicated that the soils are, quote, the primary drivers of habitat suitability for these fish, and that the eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop in specific soil types containing alkaline clay minerals known as smectites, which create the proper soil conditions for this in desiccated pool substrates. That's amazing. So this resulting mud-rich substrate in these pools has a low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in a given pool even after the surrounding water table may have receded. And of course, 
a lot of decaying materials like plant parts and leaf litter is present in the water, which would impact the pH and other characteristics of the aquatic habitat. Interestingly, though, it's known by ecologists that the water may stay alkaline in these pools despite all this stuff because of the buffering capacity of the alkaline clay present in the, present in the sediments. And to literally cap it off, if this impermeable layer were not present, the vernal pools would desiccate too rapidly to permit the critical early phases of embryonic development of nothobranchius eggs to occur. Yeah, these fishes are tied intimately to their environment. And isn't this an amazing adaptation? I mean, they're literally tied to the type of soil, how it retains water, how quickly it desiccates, and how quickly it, it saturates once it fills. The fascinating concept of what's called embryonic diapause, which is a form of prolonged yet reversal developmental arrest, is well known to scientists and, of course, the lovers of annual Achilles. The occurrence and length of time of diapause varies from species to species, yet it's considered by scientists to be an evolutionary adaptation and an ecological trait that's common in various populations of Nothobranchius tied directly into the characteristics of the ephemeral habitats in which these fishes reside. That's, like, amazing to me, again. Diapause assures species survival by enabling the annual life cycle of these fishes to be completed, and it can even be affected by the presence of adult fishes in the habitats. Like, it's not a good idea, you know, if you're a fry, if you're an egg, to hatch out uh, if potential predators are around, right? That's a fascinating adaptation to me. Now, since the embryonic, you know, phase of most Nothobranchius is relatively, a relatively long period of their lives, and in some species, the longest period of their life, Factors which impact embryonic development are really important. Okay, my head's about to explode with all this really interesting stuff. Of course, when they're filled, vernal pools are literally oases of aquatic life, and ranging from microorganisms on microcrustaceans like Daphnia to aquatic insects and their associated larvae like mosquito larvae, frogs, and even in some instances, fishes. It makes sense that fishes would find their way into these habitats over the eons, especially if they're literally filled with food for the fishes during the wet season, right? Interestingly, in the case of annual killifishes like Nothos, other species of non-annual fishes occasionally are found living with them when these habitats might be connected temporarily to adjacent, more permanent bodies of water. Now, fishes as diverse as lungfishes, barbus species, clarius catfishes, mormurids like petrocephalus, tenopoma, and non-annual killifish like Aplochiliichthys, which is a name I stumble on all the time, and even some cichlids like tilapia are found there. That's pretty cool. What an eclectic group of fishes, right? Now, these fishes aggregate in these pools because of their connected, you know, connectivity to adjacent waters, right? And they feed and thrive off this like abundant food that's present in these vernal pools. And of course, the stomach contents of Nothobranchius and the species which occur with them include stuff like planktonic and benthic invertebrates, copepods, daphnia, and insect larvae. This confirms this remarkable abundance of life, which helps sustain the fishes which reside in the vernal pools. Now, killifish hobbyists have kept annual Nothobranchius species for many, many years, and they've learned to utilize materials like peat moss to incubate the resulting eggs. There's always been more than a casual interest among these hobbyists in creating optimum levels of moisture and such within a given batch of peat moss, with the old standby reference that peat should have the consistency of moist pipe tobacco. And that's sort of the gold standard for decades. Now, that's great if you're a pipe smoker. Otherwise, it's just a guessing game. Like, I don't really know what moist pipe tobacco feels like. After studying these vernal pools now for a while, I can't help but be drawn to the idea that we played with in our urban agapo tanks. You know, utilizing soils and sediment mixes which stimulate to the most realistic extent possible the substrates of the vernal pools. I'm fascinated by this idea of including alkaline clays, specifically those with the aforementioned spectites present in a substrate mix 
intended to keep these fishes in a permanent type of a setup. Now, permanent in that we're not removing the substrate to a separate package or whatever, you know, to dry it out. I suppose the water would be the ephemeral part, right? So we're removing the water and of course the adult fishes to create a dry period while leaving the substrate more or less intact during the process. If you have plants there or whatever, maybe you're periodically wetting it or whatever. Once the appropriate incubation period for a given species is passed, the substrate wetted once again, and hopefully you get some fry, which would be reared in situ, right, in that same container. That's essentially the gist of the urban agapo concept as adapted to the killifish, you know, annual killifish life cycle is concerned. Now, I'm not going to delude myself here and think that I've invented some new approach to keeping annual killies. This idea is not really revolutionary. It's not exactly precise in nature. And it's likely far less sophisticated, efficient, and indeed controllable than the, you know, collect the peat moss and place it in a plastic bag to incubate methodology that's been used for, oh, generations of, of hobbies. I've already played with this idea um, with some South American annual killifish species, so I can't see why the idea wouldn't work well with African annuals like Nothobranchius, right? <laughs> Again, this is perhaps a bit less controlled as the more uh, the traditional approaches. It's not the key to propagating large numbers of these fishes in a predictable, guaranteed, long-term, sustainable manner. I'll give you that. However, I think it's an interesting experimental way to go. It's certainly more fun than throwing some peat moss in a plastic bag, right? It could give us some interesting insights into the actual life cycle of these fishes and how their habitats impact their existence in tangible ways. That's perhaps the most fascinating part, especially because they're so tied intimately to these vernal pools. It plays into our desire to recreate the habitats of you know, fishes in general in a more realistic, more functional manner, and to understand how they work and the threats that they face from mankind's encroachment. There's a lot to learn from, from this. And maybe, just maybe, they might help make killifish and the killifish hobby more interesting, appealing, and relevant to a new group of hobbyists. That's long been a topic of concern to the killikeeping establishment. We've covered a fair amount of information on this rather obscure yet fascinating ephemeral habitat and the fishes which reside there. Perhaps in a future in installment of the tent, I'll uh, you know, talk about my experiments with Nothobranchius and the process involved, and we can discuss the idea of creating one of these aquatic displays for Nothos and maybe other fishes which are occasionally found with them in nature. But until next time, stay studious, stay curious, stay engaged, stay diligent, stay creative, and always stay wet. This is Scott Fellman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.